This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to announce that this week's episode of Mini Mile will feature a very special celebrity guest, the singer-songwriter extraordinaire, Mr. Bob Dylan. Bob, welcome. Hey, wee, wee, wee. Sorry? Hey, wee, wee, wee. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, uh, and, and, and you too. So, uh, Bob, what is it that you love about the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast? Okay. Ah, yes, yes. Ah. Oh, 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 right, yeah. Ah. 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 Uh, and, uh, when did you start listening to it? Oh, God, Mike. This was a major mistake. Bob's at his most mumbliest. I can't understand a freaking word. I'd have been better off booking Stallone. Oh, sod it. I'll just have to translate it myself. So, Bob, uh, what are your thoughts on the podcast's new format? I love it. It's a refreshing twist on the true crime podcast format, which is full of fun and facts, and I very much look forward to the multi-part series in May. I I absolutely agree, Bob. Uh, And if you had all the money in the world, which you do, uh, what would you spend it on? Oh, Mike, there's only one thing I would buy. I would pay a small but very reasonable fee to have a whole episode of Murder Mile, or Mini Mile, dedicated to a loved one of my choice. Ah, well, uh, people do say that you're a genius, Bob, and that just sums it up. So, if you fancy having a whole episode dedicated to a loved one, or yourself, perhaps with a special message voiced by Bob Dylan, if I can find a translator, you can find it, along with many other goodies, in the Murder Mile merch shop, or click on the link in the show notes. And with the new multi-part series being so close you could almost touch it, lick it, or even mumble at it, prepare your lug holes, ready for some murderously good fun. But before that, there's this. 
Friends, welcome to Mini Mile, your indispensable compendium of UK true crime trivia. This week, we'll ask how tall or short are serial killers, what occurs during an autopsy, which celebrities have blood on their hands, who was John Lee and how did he survive three executions. We'll read two very telling letters written by John Wayne Gacy, and we'll ask who stole the Soho Gorilla. And with only three weeks till the brand new Murder Mile multi-part series, here's this week's episode of Mini Mile. So let's kick things off with a little How Do You Do? By learning more about some infamous murderers and serial killers on a more social level. This week, height. How tall or short are most serial killers? Now there's no denying that with certain serial killers, their height, or lack of height, could have played a part in their feelings as an outsider. But as this is never a primary reason for them to kill, it's often ignored. So this list is less of an insight into their psyche, and is more of a chance for us to have a bloody good nose, and to go, ooh, isn't he tall? Ooh, isn't he short? Oh wow, he's the same height as me! Or, God, he's only Diddy, and he probably has a tiny willy too. Well, that explains a lot. This list of some infamous serial killers and murderers' heights were taken not from Wikipedia, which many morons still believe as an infallible source of fact, which should never be questioned or tested, as if it's God itself. Hail Wikipedia! Font of all knowledge! But from their arrest, medical and or execution records. And yet, those details are only as good as the records themselves. So here goes. Those over six foot include Edmund Kemper, also known as the co-ed butcher, who stood at a whopping six foot nine inches tall. Stephen Port, the grinder killer, six foot three. Obviously, he was taller when he was wearing his wig. Joel Rifkin, a.k.a. Joel the Ripper, six foot two inches tall. The same height as David Ray Parker, the toolbox killer, and Robert Black, nicknamed Stinky Bob. Paul Bernardo, of the Ken and Barbie murders, was six foot and one and a half inches tall. Dennis Nielsen, the kindly killer, and famous complainer of the prison postal system, was six foot and one inches tall. Which was also the same height as Levi Belfield, the bus stop killer. John Allen Muhammad, the Washington sniper. Dr. Thomas Neal Cream, the Lambeth poisoner and major Guinness fan, and Randall Woodfield, the I-5 killer. Slightly shorter is Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, who was six foot and three quarters of an inch, one quarter of an inch taller than Jeffrey Dahmer, the Milwaukee cannibal, and then at a height of just six foot, Ian Brady, the Moors murderer, obviously he's a lot shorter now, because he's dead, Larry Isler, the highway killer, Glenn Edward Rogers, the cross-country killer, Arthur Shawcross, the Genesee River killer, and writer of very shitty poems, as we remember from last week, and Stephen Griffiths, the crossbow cannibal. So of those under six foot, or of regular height, Kenneth Bianchi, the hillside strangler, was five foot and eleven half inches tall, Colin Ireland was five foot and eleven inches tall, the same height as Dennis Radder, the BTK killer, Dean Call, the Candyman, 
and John Strafen, the child killer and Britain's longest serving prisoner, who'd been in prison for 55 years. Ted Bundy, the crazy lady's favourite and they're currently drooling all over him, he was 5 foot 10. The same as Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, and Peter Tobin, the Scottish serial killer who is possibly also Bible John. Henry Lee Lucas, the highway stalker, was 5 foot 9.5 inches tall. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, who looks taller than he is but he's actually only 5 foot 9. The same height as Anthony Hardy, the Camden Ripper, who we remember was a lover of rum and coke. Harold Shipman, Dr. Death, one of the world's most prolific serial killers, also 5 foot 9. As well as John George Haig, the acid bath murderer. John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown. Herbert Mullen, who claimed that his killings prevented earthquakes. And Richard Loeb, of the famous Leopold and Loeb, who believed that they could create the perfect murder. Just slightly shorter was John Reginald Christie. I wondered if he'd like a nice cup of tea. Five foot eight and a half inches tall. Just under him was David Berkowitz, son of Sam, five foot eight. Same height as Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. And just below them was Fred West, who was five foot and seven and a half inches tall. And Ronnie and Reggie Cray, the East London gangsters who murdered Jack the Hat and George Cornell. A lot shorter than you'd think. Right, now we're getting into a list of men who are slightly below average, or in this case, average for women. So, Ed Gein, inspiration for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho, the necrophile who shared a bed with his dead mum. He was 5 foot 7 inches. The same height as George Joseph Smith, the Brides in the Bath murderer, Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, the World's Fair killer, and not Jack the Ripper. Unless you believe that crappy documentary. God, that was awful. Judy Broyano, the Black Widow, a husband killer and our tallest lady on the list. And Trevor Hardy, the Beast of Manchester. Martha Beck, the Lonely Hearts killer, was five foot six. although to be honest, she was as tall as she was round. Same height as Nathan Leopold Jr. of the aforementioned Leopold and Loeb. Slightly shorter, at five foot five, was Myra Hindley, the Moors murderer. Same height as Albert Fish, the paedophile and child killer, and Peter Curtin, the vampire of Dusseldorf, the person for whom the term serial murderer was coined. Not Ted Bundy. Henri Desiree Landru, also known as the lady killer, he was only five foot and four and a half inches tall, but what he lacked in height, he gained in beard. Check his photo, it's magnificent. Carla Homolka of the Ken and Barbie murders. She was five foot four. She's now been released from prison. Isn't that nice? She's the same height as Beverly Allett, the Angel of Death, and Aileen Warnos, who definitely does not look like Charlize Theron. Slightly shorter is Margie Velma Barfield, the first woman executed by lethal injection. She was five foot three. Under her is Dorothea Puente, the Death House landlady. She was five foot two. And Kristen Gilbert, the angel of death, she was exactly five foot tall. Now, I've separated some of these out, so now it's time for the tiny men. David Copeland, the London nail bomber, who set off the bombers you'll remember in the Admiral Duncan. He was five foot four. Peter Manuel, the beast of Birkinshaw, he was five foot four as well. And Donald Henry Gaskins, nicknamed Pee Wee, he also was five foot four. 
Slightly shorter was Dr. H.H. H. Crippen, convicted of murdering his wife, even though he was innocent. Find out more on Murder Mile. He was five foot three. David Burney, who with his wife Catherine was dubbed the Morehouse murderers, he was only five foot two. And finally, at the bottom of the list, is the tiny, tiny Charles Manson. Not really a murderer, just a deluded tosspot who many idiots believe was a deity. He was five foot two inches tall. So how do the world's most dangerous and demented serial killers compare to some of the world's most powerful people in terms of height? What follows is some of the world's most infamous leaders, despots and dictators, you can decide which is which, arranged from tallest to shortest. Idi Amin, the possible cannibal and knicker requester of Her Majesty the Queen, he was six foot four inches tall. Donald Trump, current US president, six foot three inches tall, although he's probably the bigliest, okay? And if you were to ask him, he'd probably say he's six foot eight. Barack Obama was six foot two. The tallest president in US history was Abraham Lincoln, obviously, who was six foot four. Slightly shorter, Lyndon Johnson, six foot three and a half inches. Thomas Jefferson, six foot two and a half. George Washington, six foot two. Bill Clinton, six foot two. And JFK and Ronald Reagan were six foot one. Saddam Hussein was six foot two. Colonel Gaddafi, Libya's main supply of methane, was approximately six foot tall. George W. Bush voted America's best ever president by the George W. Bush fan club is only 5 foot 11 inches tall, which is oddly 3 inches shorter than his daddy and 3.5 inches shorter than Jeb Bush. Pol Pot, the Cambodian dictator and inventor of the pot noodle, he was 5 foot 9. Kim Jong-un, North Korea's biggest fan of hits like Excellent Horse-like Lady, is also 5 foot 9. Adolf Hitler, the dog-loving, crap landscape-painting and vegetarian bumwind trumpeter, was 5 foot 8 inches tall. And yet, interestingly, when you look at British propaganda, they always like to make out that Hitler was short. But when you compare him to Winston Churchill, Churchill was only five foot and four and a half inches tall. Vladimir Putin, whose middle name is also Vladimir, is five foot seven. Benito Mussolini, or as we learnt last week, Senor Garlic Breath himself, five foot six. Napoleon Bonaparte, who the British also claimed were thimble-sized, was also five foot six, which for that era, was above average. Joseph Stalin, who loved power, hated poetry, and was an all-round arsehole, was five foot five. And finally, Silvio Berlusconi, the former Italian premier, full-time criminal, and sexy nunshagger. He was just five foot five. And there you go. Now you can impress your friends by saying, "Did you know?" and recanting the list I've just read to you. Except, somewhere in that last list, I threw in a big fat lie. Did you spot it? No? Good. Now it's time to get technical. Let's get technical! 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 My wife left me, and so did my dog. That was my country and western version. I hope you liked it. Let's get technical by clipping away the nasty 1980s mullet of fact 
from those CSI-style crime shows and ask, how does it work? This week, autopsies. What happens in an autopsy? We've all seen it in those cop shows. We're in a cold white morgue, there's a dead body on a slab, the cop comes in, the pathologist pulls back a plastic sheet, and wham, we see a very obvious injury, and the culprit is caught. And if we're lucky, we get to see some boobs, some bush, some bot-bot, and for the ladies, a wiggly bit of winkle. Admit it. You know you all pause those scenes in Silent Witness. And if anyone comes into the room, you say, Oh, oh, uh, I was just pausing it while I was making a cup of tea. That's all. And I definitely wasn't ogling the dead man's rather delightful blue vein piccolo slash pink oboe slash fleshy love trumpet. Unless, of course, it's Tom Hardy. But surely he'll never pop his lad out in the flicks as he's such a classy actor. That said, he did in that film Bronson. Remember that? Where he was stark bollock naked for like half the film, and in that one scene he shouted, Lube me up! Which the prison guard did, with the handfuls of Vaseline. What? You didn't know about that? Well, that explains why you're all sweaty. Look, if you ladies or gents weren't aware that Tom Hardy is totally stark as in Bronson, feel free to go and download it on Netflix. We'll wait for you. Don't worry. They may be a while. I tell you what, we'll carry on without them. They won't be able to concentrate anyway. So, what is an autopsy? Also called a post-mortem examination or necropsy, an autopsy can either be an internal and or an external examination of a whole body or just a single organ to determine a cause of death, whether by accident, homicide, suicide, negligence, infectious disease or natural event. Autopsies are also used to identify a person in times of natural or man-made disasters and for research purposes. Autopsy derives from the Greek word autopsia, meaning to see with one's own eyes. So does every death require an autopsy? No. Only if the manner of death is suspicious, unexpected, undetermined, or could present a significant risk to public health, or has legal or financial ramifications. Autopsies can be requested by the health authority, police, hospital, coroner, or the family themselves. So what happens before an autopsy? This is a key step overlooked by TV shows, but the body has to be transported to the mortuary, and to ensure that any vital evidence is preserved. The body is placed in a HRP, a human remains pouch, also known as a body bag. Conceived during World War I, originally this was just a simple cotton cover. By the Vietnam War, it had been replaced by a thick black rubber sack. But today's HRPs are thick sealed waterproof plastic bags, designed to retain even the smallest of remains, whether hair, blood, purge fluid, powder, dirt, etc. And that's also the reason why the bags are white. A new body bag is used for each person and they are completely sterile. Any body parts which are believed to hold significant evidence, whether the fingers or feet, are also wrapped in paper bags, sealed and taped shut. 
and the body is then tagged and catalogued to avoid confusion. The autopsy is split into two parts, an external and an internal examination, although the type of examination is entirely dependent on what the perceived death is. First is an external examination. Step 1. The body is photographed before it is moved, creating a record of how it was received, and the pathologist also notes down the position of the body, any clothing, any visible scars or injuries. Step 2. With the body still in the HRP, the body's basic details are recorded. Age, sex, race, weight, height, hair, skin and eye colour, tattoos, surgical scars, birthmarks, etc. Step 3. Any unnatural residue, such as dirt, oil or paint, is collected from the surface of the body for examination, and an ultraviolet light is used to check for any residue not visible to the naked eye. Step 4. Samples of hair, skin and blood are taken, if needed. And also if needed, the body is radiographically imaged in an MRI to see inside the body before a single incision is made. These four steps are all done whilst the body is still inside the HRP to ensure that any evidence is retained inside the white plastic bag. Only then do we reach step five. The body is removed from the HRP by the DINA, also known as the APT, the anatomical pathology technician, and placed on a sterile aluminium examination table. Here the body is undressed, cleaned, weighed, measured and prepared for an internal examination, if needed. Steps 1 to 4 are repeated now that the body is out of the HRP and the HRP itself is examined. Throughout the autopsy, the pathologist will verbally record each stage of the process, as well as writing notes on a pre-printed autopsy report and marking any injuries on a diagram of the body. And they'll probably have a good old ogle at their boobs, bush, butt, butt and bell end. That's how I met sweet seeping Susan. <sighs> what pathologists don't do, which TV shows love pretending that they do, is they don't nibble on a kebab, puff on a ciggy, or swig a hot cup of bovril while slicing up a cadaver or examining a body. As a mortuary is a sterile environment, and any external factors are considered contamination which could either destroy or compromise the evidence. If an internal examination is required, to make the torso easier to examine, a rubber brick, called a head block, is placed under the shoulders. This causes the neck to hyperflex, arching the spine backwards and pushing the chest upwards, making any incision easier. In an autopsy, bleeding is minimal or non-existent in most cases, as with no heart to pump the blood around, gravity causes the blood and other fluids to pool at the lowest part of the body, unless of course the body has drowned. And if possible, no incisions are made which would be visible at an open casket funeral. There are four different types of incisions made during an autopsy, depending on which organs need to be examined. Number one, a large and deep Y-shaped incision starting at the top of each shoulder running down the front of the chest and ending at the base of the breastbone, also known as the sternum. Number two, a curved incision from the tips of each shoulder down and across the second ribs. Number three, a vertical incision 
From the base of the neck to the base of the sternum, this is the one they tend to use on all the TV shows. And number four, a U-shaped incision from the tips of the shoulders down the sides of the chest. Using a prosector, which is like a set of garden shears, the pathologist will cut through the ribs to open the chest cavity. The sternum, the breastbone, will be removed and set aside for later. And at this point, the heart and the lungs can be examined in situ for evidence of disease, injury or trauma. As the heart and the lungs are our blood and oxygen supply, and without them, we're dead, they're usually the first internal organs to be examined. Once this is complete, the other organs can be examined. But depending on the pathologist's preferred style or requirement for the autopsy, the organs are either removed one by one in a slow methodical fashion, or en masse, meaning in a large block. This method is used, especially with infants or babies. At this point, each internal organ is examined, weighed, and tissue samples are taken in the form of several thin slices, which will neatly fit onto a microscope slide. The major blood vessels are inspected for clotting, ruptures, swelling or infection, and the contents of the stomach are checked to determine a time of death, as certain foods digest at different rates. Body fluids may also be checked, such as urine, blood, the vitreous gel from the eyes, or bile from the gallbladder, for evidence of drugs, infection, chemical composition or any genetic factors. A toxicology report can also be requested to determine what, if any, drugs or poisons have been taken or ingested. But this is not always essential, and it is limited to the most commonplace of toxins. As it is impossible to search for every type of drug, poison or toxin, the pathologist can either recommend a broad spectrum report and or a search of a very few specific poisons, but they cannot search for everything. If an examination of the brain is required, an incision is made from behind one ear, over the crown of the head, to the other ear, and the scalp is pulled away in two flaps, one over the face and one over the back of the neck. With the skull exposed, a cranial cut is made using a semicircular saw around the skull like a cap, which can neatly be removed and the brain can be observed in situ. If required, the cranial nerves and spinal cord can be severed and the brain can be removed. Once the autopsy is complete, the cap can be refitted, the scalp flaps can be pulled back into place on the head and stitched, and the scar won't be visible in an open casket. Any organs not required for further examination are placed in plastic bags to prevent leakage and return to the body. With the lining of the body cavity, filled with cotton wool or any other absorbent material. And then the chest cavity is sewn shut in what is regarded as a baseball stitch. The body is then ready to be embalmed by a funeral director. And there you go. You are now a fully-fledged pathologist and qualified to conduct your own autopsies. Well done. Well, you're as qualified as any TV actor playing a pathologist. And just think, if Tom Hardy, steady ladies, if Tom Hardy dies in a TV drama or film, 
I'm sure there would be a rush of you who would suddenly find that you're rather trained actors and part-time morticians, eager to pretend that you can determine a time of death according to the smoothness of his chest, the smell of his armpits, the taste of his lips, and your own specific scientific method, the length of his willy. And you think I'm weird for going on a date with sweet, seeping Susan. Right. Now, I'm very poor, hungry, and exhausted, as my lovely girlfriend, Eva Green, keeps forcing me to make mad passionate love to her. (sighs) I know, I know. When will she realise I'm not a machine? So to keep my strength up, I need to haul myself out by possibly placing a possible advert in a probable gap which may or may not exist. Oh, hang on a minute. Hi, it's Mike. Hiya, Mike. It's Acast here. Oh, hello, Acast. Uh, Mark's not here today, but I am. I'm Mike. How can I help? Well, Mark. <coughs> Say hello, introduce yourself, and read as follows. Dear insert name. That would be Mark. Or Mike. Uh, well, we're both easy. Acast appreciates you, insert name. And your podcast, insert name, it is well good, and we especially like the episode on choose one from the list but don't listen to it as Jenga won't play itself. It was funny slash sad slash informative, delete as appropriate. Oh man, this script goes on for ages. It's like two paragraphs long. And we've got naked Jenga starting in ten minutes and an afternoon of inflatable sumo. A colon flushing race and the grand final of Hoxton's skinniest jeans and tiniest hat contest. So I'll just say, cheers, yeah? Oh, okay. Thanks, Acast. Uh, and will there be an advert this week? You know, Mark, I don't know. Fine. Here's an advert or a space. 
And now, on with the show. So, O.J. Simpson. When his name is mentioned, what instantly springs to mind? Do you remember him as the running back for the Buffalo Bills and the San Francisco 49ers, who earned the title of the NFL's Most Valuable Player of 1973? Or was the much-loved actor from films like Roots, Capricorn One and the Naked Gun Trilogy? No, it's neither, isn't it? If you think of O.J. Simpson, you think of murder. He's the man who, some people believe, was wrongly acquitted of the brutal murder of Nicole Simpson and Ronald Goldman. But which other celebrities have been involved in someone else's death? Ooh. Find out in this week's edition of Celebrity Death Squad! Oh, oh. Before I die, can I have an autograph? Here's ten names for you to chew on. Matthew Broderick In 1987, Ferris Bueller star Matthew Broderick was holidaying in Enniskillen, Northern Ireland, with his girlfriend and Bueller star at the time, Jennifer Grey, when he mistakenly drove his rented BMW on the wrong side of the road, hitting an oncoming Volvo and killing Anna Gallagher, who was 29, and her mother, Margaret Doherty, who was 63. Broderick, who suffered multiple fractures, a collapsed lung and concussion, was charged with death by dangerous driving and faced five years in prison. But this charge was later lessened to careless driving, and he was fined just £175. Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner. In February 2015, on the Malibu section of the Pacific Coast Highway, Jenner's SUV was involved in a multiple car collision, which killed Kim Howe, an animal rights activist, and injuring others. Although the details of the incident, how it happened and who was injured, have varied, with Jenner claiming he was being chased by the paparazzi at the time, which cannot be verified by the police. All but one of the subsequent lawsuits against Jenner have been financially settled out of court. Snoop Dogg, born Cordoza Calvin Broadus Jr. What a name. On the 25th of August 1993, Snoop Dogg, who was affiliated, although he claimed never to have joined the infamous Rollin' Twenty Crips gang of the east side of Long Beach, was riding with his friends McKinley Lee and Sean Abrams when they got into a petty argument with a rival gangster. Philip Voldmarium of the By Yourself Hustlers crew was shot and killed. Snoop Dogg was later acquitted of murder after many lengthy court battles, and his defence attorney, was none other than Johnny Cochran, O.J. Simpson's lawyer. Keith Moon of The Who, whose real name is Keith Moon. On the 4th of January 1970, The Who's infamous drummer, Keith Moon, was drinking at the Red Lion pub in Hatfield, Hertfordshire, with his friend and bodyguard, Neil Boland. Following a fracas, leading to some of the pub's regulars harassing and attacking Moon's Bentley, he tried to escape, But being heavily intoxicated, as usual, Moon accidentally ran over his bodyguard, Neil Boland, killing him. Although the death was ruled an accident, Moon pleaded guilty to dangerous driving, and the death of his friend haunted his nightmares until he died in 1978. William S. Burroughs, 
the cult author of Naked Lunch, was drinking with friends at the Bounty Bar in Mexico City when he pulled a revolver from his travel bag and exclaimed to his girlfriend, It's time for our William Tell act. As you remember, William Tell famously shot an apple off his son's head. With both William and his girlfriend, Joan Volmer, being incapably drunk and suffering from heroin withdrawal, Volmer placed a highball glass on her head. But Burroughs missed, shooting her in the forehead and killing her instantly. Having bribed Mexican officials, Burroughs skipped town, returned to the USA, and was convicted in his absence of murder and was given a paltry two-year suspended sentence. Sid Vicious Born John Simon Ritchie, bassist for the Sex Pistols, he stabbed his girlfriend Nancy Spungen to death on the bathroom floor of the Hotel Chelsea in Manhattan, New York, on the 12th of October 1978, using a 007 flip knife. She suffered a single stab wound to the abdomen and died of blood loss. Ten days later, Sid Vicious attempted to commit suicide by slitting his wrists with a broken light bulb. And even whilst hospitalised in the infamous Bellevue Hospital, he tried again to kill himself by jumping out of a high window, all the while screaming, I want to be with you, Nancy. But whilst on bail for Nancy's murder, Sid Vicious took an overdose of heroin on the 1st of February 1979 and died. It is unclear whether this was a suicide. Howard Hughes, the billionaire owner of Transworld Airlines, director of the ludicrously expensive feature film Hell's Angels, and inventor of the infamous Spruce Goose, a plane so big it barely flew, struck and killed a pedestrian, Gabriel Meyer, on the 11th of July 1936. Hughes, an obsessive compulsive with a long history of pain-related issues, had been drinking and driving erratically when he mounted the curb, killing Meyer. But following a lengthy legal dispute, the witness changed their testimony and corroborated with Hughes' statement that I was driving slowly and a man stepped out of the darkness in front of me. Dwayne Lee Dog Chapman I of the TV series Dog the Bounty Hunter In 1976, Dwayne Chapman was sat in a car outside the home of a 69-year-old pimp and drug dealer, Jerry Oliver, waiting for his friend to buy cannabis. An altercation occurred, during which... Dog's friend shot and killed Jerry Oliver. Dog was convicted of first-degree murder and served 18 months of a five-year sentence in Texas State Penitentiary. Vince Neil, frontman of Motley Crue. After hours of partying with Nicholas Razzle Dingley, the drummer of Hanoi Rocks, he drove to a liquor store, lost control of the Pantera and hit an oncoming car. Dingley was killed the occupants of the other car suffered severe brain damage and Neil was found guilty of dangerous driving. He was jailed for 30 days and was ordered to pay $2.6 million in restitution costs to the victims, as well as serving 200 hours of community service. But because of his good behaviour, he was out of jail in just 15 days. And finally, Phil Spector. Real name, Harvey Philip Spector. On the 3rd of February 2003, at his mansion known as the Pyrenees Castle in Alhambra, California, legendary record producer and songwriter Phil Spector shot and killed bit-part actress Lena Clark in what Spector would call an accidental suicide. She'd been found slumped in an armchair 
a single bullet wound to her mouth, and her teeth scattered across the carpet. After a successful retrial, Spectre was found guilty of second-degree murder and illegally discharging a weapon, and was sentenced to 19 years in prison. He will be eligible for parole when he is 88 years old. And as for myself, although I'm not a celebrity, if anyone asks if I've ever killed anyone, I always say, never convicted, whilst tapping my nose. And as for sweet seeping Susan, my decomposing date who I took to Nando's, well, she was already dead in the first place, my lud. The case rests. So, like that moment when you're in a friend's kitchen and they pop upstairs for a second and you think to yourself, ooh, I'll just have a little look in their cupboards just to see how truly weird they are. No? Just me? Oh, okay. Um, let's have a gander. At the Strange Zone! Where I share with you a tidbit of true crime trivia which will make you go as Bob Dylan would say. This week, we discuss John Lee, the man they couldn't hang. John Henry George Lee was born on the 15th of November 1864 in the rural village of Abbots Kurzweil in Devon. As a working-class boy who left school with no qualifications, John began his working life as a humble servant to Miss Emma Ann Whitehead Keyes, a spinster who lived alone in an affluent house called The Glen in the coastal hamlet of Babacombe Bay. With her servants, sisters Jane and Eliza Neck, Elizabeth Harris the cook, and the cook's half-brother, John Henry George Lee. Being a restless teenager, with no money, no life experience, and eager to see the world, John enlisted in the Royal Navy. But almost as quickly as he had left, he was invalided out of the Navy owing to a leg injury, and was returned back to Devon. Being broke, John tried his hand at being a footman, but was found guilty of stealing from his employer, and was sentenced to two years' hard labour. In 1884, aged 20, thanks to the kindness and generosity of his former employer, Emma Keyes, John Lee was taken back to the familiar surroundings of his job at the Glen in Babacombe Bay. Barely a few months later, on the morning of the 15th of November 1884, Miss Emma Keyes was found brutally murdered. Her throat was slit from ear to ear with a kitchen knife. She had three deep puncture wounds to her head. And in an attempt to hide his crime, her corpse had been set on fire. The police had just one suspect. John Henry George Lee. A convicted criminal with an unexplained cut on his arm, who was the only male in the house at the time. That was their evidence. There were no witnesses to her murder, no sightings of John, and he had the same alibi as everyone else in the house. He was asleep. He had no motive, no murder weapon, no bloodstains upon him, and he'd stolen nothing. The evidence was slim, and as his legal defence became unstable, as his lawyer started to feel ill, and later dying, and believing his innocence, John stated... 
The reason I am so calm is that I trust the Lord and he knows that I am innocent. Only his prayers fell on deaf ears. As John Lee was found guilty of murder and he was sentenced to be hung by the neck until he was dead. It appeared that as much as he had prayed, God had forgotten John Lee. Or had he? On the morning of the 23rd of February 1885, at Exeter Prison, a set of wooden gallows were transferred from the old infirmary into the coach house in preparation for the execution of 21-year-old John Lee. As was his job, the executioner, James Berry, calculated John Lee's weight and height, measured out a length of hemp rope appropriate to the necessary drop to break his neck. A slip knot and a noose were tied at one end, and James Berry tested the trap doors of the gallows with a sack of grain in place of the prisoner. Everything worked perfectly. At the strike of the hour, as John Lee stood on the gallows with a hemp rope around his neck, as Berry pulled on the drawbar to open the trap doors, with a quick drop and a sudden stop, soon enough John Lee's neck would be snapped and he would be dead. Only it didn't. John Lee's neck didn't break. In fact, he didn't even drop or move as the trap doors remained shut. James Berry pulled the drawbar again. Nothing. Unsure what was wrong, John Lee was removed from the gallows, and as he watched from the side, the sack of grain once again took his place. Only this time, the trap door sprung open. With the problem solved, and with his appointment with death imminent, John Lee was returned to the gallows, his head put through the noose, and with a sharp tug of the drawbar, Nothing. John Lee wasn't dead, and he hadn't moved an inch. Again he was removed from the gallows. Again the drawbar was tugged, and again the sack of grain plummeted to the ground, on command. So once again John Lee was returned to the gallows, his feet on the trapdoors, his head through a noose, his neck seconds away from being broken, and his life being extinguished forever and as James Barry yanked hard on the drawbar nothing John Lee wouldn't die being pushed aside by the executioner whose incompetence was obvious to all who watched impatiently as John Lee stood there not dead and James Berry stamped up and down upon the trap doors, trying to force them open with his body weight, his face red with fury, knowing full well that he wouldn't be paid for this botched job. And yet, with John Lee having survived an execution three times, the medical officer refused to take part in this debacle, and with no medical officer to oversee it, the execution was stopped. Home Secretary Sir William Harcourt later commuted John Lee's sentence to a life sentence, stating, It would shock the feeling of anyone if a man had twice to pay the pangs of imminent death. In 1907, 22 years after he had cheated death, John Lee was released from prison. When the gallows were inspected, 
it appeared that when it was moved from the old infirmary to the coach house, the drawbar had been slightly misaligned, meaning the hinges of the trapdoor were at best temperamental and at worst useless. So whether this was divine intervention, we shall never know. But then as John Lee himself said, The reason I am so calm is that I trust the Lord and he knows that I am innocent. To be honest, I'm amazed he didn't accidentally hang himself by slipping in his own bum soil. Because I know if it was me that was about to be executed, my gas trumpet would be parping out a merry tune and a whole boatload of bum bisto would be trickling south. What do you think, Bob? I agree, Bob. That was a fabulous story. And it would have sounded even better to listen to it while supping a nice cup of tea in a Murder Mile mug, available via the Murder Mile merch shop. Wow, I wish I'd thought of that. Thanks, Bob. Hey, what's that plopping through my letterbox? Is it a handy book of how to translate what Bob Dylan says? I wish. Is it an invitation from Her Majesty the Queen for services for podcasting in a fancy ceremony where I will be knighted Sir Murdermile and any misdemeanours involving Sweet Seeping Susan will be expunged from my record and it will also give me a fabulous opportunity to ogle Her Royal Hotness, Princess Kate? Oh God, I hope so. Sadly, it's not. Of course, it is. The Dead Letter Drop! Yes, each week I'll read you a rather mundane letter written by a serial killer. This week we have two different letters written by one American serial killer, John Wayne Gacy. Now, as a bit of background for this, I will say, Gacy was a man with two very distinct lives. On the one hand, he was a professional contractor a community volunteer, a businessman and a children's entertainer who dressed as Pogo the Clown. And on the other side, he raped, tortured and murdered at least 33 teenage boys and young men between 1972 and 1978 and buried their bodies under the crawl space of his home. The evidence against him was overwhelming to say the least. Which is why this first letter is so fascinating. It's a typed letter by Gacy. It's undated, but appears to have been sent in the early 1980s while serving on death row and awaiting his appeals. And it was sent to Mr. Louis Kuttner, attorney at law in Chicago. As before, because I can't do a Chicago accent, I'm going to read it in a Brummy accent. But that may, of course, slip into Scouse, Welsh, Mank, or, very likely, something deeply offensive. Anyway. Here goes. Dear Mr. Kudner, I have recently read about you in the newspapers and wondered if you might be interested in taking on my case at a point of post-conviction. While I feel I have good issues, I don't feel I will get justice in the Illinois courts because of public pressure and mass publicity surrounding my case. The state appellate defender is handling my case at this point but may not be when I get to post-conviction. I was railroaded to where I am now in death row. 
not only by incompetent counsel, but by constitutional law, judicial misconduct, along with procedural errors. Not the 33 boys buried underneath his crawl space. Since you are as famous as I am infamous, bit vain there, I wonder if you would handle the case of a mass murderer who is not one, but who can't seem to get anyone to look at the facts instead of mass publicity, fantasy and state theories. Yep, that's what it's about, John Wayne. If you're interested, I would like to hear from you one way or another and maybe be able to fill you in on more of the facts so that you can see what I have to work with. I am told that if you would put all of the facts of my case into a computer, along with all of Illinois law, my case would be thrown out, as there is no evidence to tie it all together. I have been made into a media monster, through mass publicity, and the facts just seem to go right out the door. Thanks for taking your time to read this. Look forward to hearing from you. Yours sincerely, John Wayne Gacy. Yes, John Wayne Gacy, you're absolutely right. Put all of the facts to do with the 33 dead bodies who were mysteriously found under your house and the entire US legal system into a computer. Ooh, which in that era would have been at best a BBC micro with the computing power of a gnat holding an abacus. You could then just press enter and out it would print Gacy is innocent. Case closed. And secondly, we have a handwritten letter by Gacy, dated the 6th of May 1994. It is signed John Wayne Gacy and was sent just four days before he was executed. It's on headed paper and has at the top of the page, in red ink, John Wayne Gacy, Lockbox 710, Maynard, Illinois. And as the tagline, execution, dot dot dot, revenge for a sick society, three exclamation marks. Given what we already know about him, it's important to know this. This letter is written to an unnamed boy who Gacy was corresponding with whilst on death row, having previously murdered boys of his age. Hi-ho. Hey, it was nice talking to you, and keep up with a positive attitude. I understand what you're going through with your parents splitting up. But just remember, it's not your fault. Grown-ups do crazy things like murdering 33 young children. But it doesn't mean they still don't love you. You have to accept the things you can't change, and change the ones you can, and always think positive for yourself, as you have a lot going for you. I enjoy your letters. I've enclosed some artwork of my own. Take care of yourself for now. Best of the gods, your friend up north, John Wayne Gacy. Ah. That's nice. Or is it? I mean, would you want Gacy as your friend if you were a young boy? Nope, me neither. I'd sooner prefer to have Bob Dylan as my speech therapist. I agree, Bob. And finally, folks, and before I head off to make myself a delightful dinner of potatoes, tuna, sauerkraut and coleslaw, Mmm, nice. Here's the latest instalment of Quickie News. A few months ago, 
an odd theft took place in Soho. No, it wasn't the one brush that is used to occasionally sweep the streets. No, it wasn't the smile that the locals sometimes share when tourists come flocking into their neighbourhood. And no, it wasn't my virginity. <coughs> Eva Green took that many years ago. Nope, it was a life-size statue of a gorilla worth £20,000, which was stolen from a hotel roof terrace. The sculpture of the mountain gorilla, who was nicknamed Ace, was six foot tall and weighed over 160 kilos. And for the last five years, the sculpture of the gorilla had been perched overlooking a hot tub several floors up on the roof of the super-posh Hotel Karma Sanctum in Warwick Street. This is a very Soho story. About 9am on Saturday the 5th of November 2018, two men in hard hat and high-vis jackets went up to the roof, unscrewed the gorilla, and given its weight and size, being the weight and size of a fully grown mountain gorilla, believing that these workmen were contracted by the hotel, three other builders on a building opposite gave them a hand to carry it down the internal staircase of the hotel. The statue of Ace was left in Warwick Street until a white van pulled up and then drove away with it. This heist took less than an hour and the gorilla hasn't been seen since. And as Ace was situated on the roof terrace overlooking the hot tub in a private area for members and hotel guests only, there was no CCTV footage. Although, given that this happened during daylight, it's amazing that nobody stopped and took a photo of it, or even worse, a selfie with it and the thieves. But then again, you see all manner of weird shit in Soho, so this is nothing. And now you know. So, my beloved friends, that was your weekly dose of Mini Mile. I hope it was bibbly, bobbly, babbly, fiddly friendly, and a freaking delightful companion to your regular Murder Mile. Don't forget the new exciting Murder Mile multi-part series is coming very soon, and next week there will be even more Mini Mile. And if you have any comments about Mini Mile, any original questions you're desperate for me to answer, or any unusual topics you'd love me to research, let me know via email, my website, or social media. A big thank you this week to my new Patreon supporters, who were Anna Marie Svensson, Sticky Sound Zine, Karen Clifton, and a thank you to Sticky and Tracy for the yummy Mr. Kipling cakes. As well as my current Patreon supporters and all the loyal listeners whose kind words and support are very much appreciated as always. Murder Mile will be back next week, but before that, here's my recommended podcast of the week. Love to you all. Tatty bye! Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my show is for you. I'll peel back the curtain and give you a glimpse into the life and crimes of some of the most demented minds. Check out the episode Broken Bonds and listen to a brother reveal a deeply held secret. Or hear about the day that the heavy metal community will never forget in the episode Dimebag. These episodes are just a sample of our catalog, so you have plenty to binge. Just search for True Crime Fan Club Podcast and any podcatcher. You won't want to miss an episode. 
Hey, this is Chris, the host of Killer Jobs, the podcast that discovers the day jobs of the world's most famous serial killers. Explore how these psychopaths functioned in the real world, how murder interfered with their work, and what coworkers had to say. Killer Jobs investigates a new serial killer every Tuesday and is available on all podcast players. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.